Chapter Seventeen of *The Spirit of the Age*, or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Chapter Seventeen. Mister T. Moore, Mister Lee Hunt, or winglet of the fairy hummingbird, like atoms of the rainbow fluttering round. Camba. The lines placed at the head of the sketch from a contemporary writer appear to us very descriptive of Mr. Moore's poetry. His verse is like a shower of beauty, a dance of images, a stream of music, or like the spray of the waterfall tinged by the morning beam of rosy light. The characteristic distinction of our author's style is this continuous and incessant flow of voluptuous thoughts and shining illusions. He ought to write with a crystal pen on silver paper. His subject is set off by a dazzling veil of poetic diction like a wreath of flowers gemmed with numerous dewdrops, that weep, tremble, and glitter in liquid softness and pearly light, while the song of birds ravishes the air, and languid odors breathe around, and aurora opens heaven's smiling portals. Paras and nymphs peep through the golden glades, and an angel's wing glances over the glossy scene. No dainty flower or herb that grows on ground, no arboret but painted blossoms dressed, and smelling sweet but there it might be found to bud out fair and its sweet smells throw all around no tree whose branches did not bravely spring no branch whereon a fine bird did not sit no bird but did her shrill notes sweetly sing no song but did contain a lovely dit trees branches birds and songs were framed fit for to allure frail minds to careless ease mr campbell's imagination is fastidious and select and hence though we meet with more exquisite beauties in his writings we meet with them more rarely there is comparatively a dearth of ornament. But Mr. Moore's strictest economy is wasteful and superfluous success. He is always liberal and never at a loss, for sooner than not stimulate and delight the reader, he is willing to be tawdry or superficial or commonplace. His muse must be fine at any rate, though she should paint and wear cast-off decorations. Rather than have any lack of excitement, he repeats himself. An Eden, an Iblis, and cherub smiles fill up the pauses of the sentiment with a sickly monotony. It has been too much our author's object to pander to the artificial taste of the age, and his productions, however brilliant and agreeable, are in consequence somewhat meretricious and effeminate. It was thought formerly enough to have an occasionally fine passage in the progress of a story or a poem, and an occasionally striking image or expression in a fine passage or description, but the style, it seems, was to be exploded as rude, gothic, meager, and dry. Now all must be raised to the same tantalizing and preposterous level. There must be no pause, no interval, no repose, no gradation. Simplicity and truth yield up the palm to affectation and grimace. The craving of the public mind after novelty and effect is a false and uneasy appetite that must be pampered with fine words at every step. We must be tickled with sound, startled with shoe, and relieved by the importunate, uninterrupted display of fancy and verbal tinsel as much as possible from the fatigue of thought or shock of feeling. A poem is to resemble an exhibition of fireworks, with a continual explosion of quaint figures and devices, flash after flash that surprise for the moment and leave no trace of light or warmth behind them. Her modern poetry in its retrograde progress comes at last to be constructed on the principles of the modern opera, where an attempt is made to gratify every sense at every instant, and where the understanding alone is insulted and heart mocked. It is in this view only that we can discover that Mr. Moore's poetry is vitiated or immoral. It seduces the taste and enervates the imagination. It creates a false standard of reference and inverts or decompounds the natural order of association in which objects strike the thoughts and feelings. 
His is the poetry of the bath, of the toilet, of the saloon, of the fashionable world, not the poetry of nature, of the heart or of human life. He stunts and enfeebles equally the growth of the imagination and the affections by not taking the seed of poetry and sowing it in the ground of truth and letting it expand in the dew and rain and shoot up to heaven and spread its sweet leaves to the air or dedicate its beauty to the sun. Instead of which, he anticipates and defeats his own object by plucking flowers and blossoms from the stem and setting them in the ground of idleness and folly or in the cap of his own vanity where they soon wither and disappear, dying or ere they sicken. This is but a sort of child's play, a short-sighted ambition. In Milton we meet with many prosaic lines, either because the subject does not require raising, or because they are necessary to connect the story, or serve as a relief to other passages. There is not such a thing to be found in all Mr. Moore's writings. His volumes present us with a perpetual feast of nectared sweets, but we cannot add where no crude surfeit reigns. He indeed cloys with sweetness, he obscures with splendor, he fatigues with gaiety. We are stifled on beds of roses. We literally lie on the rack of restless ecstasy. His flowery fancy looks so fair and smells so sweet that the sense aches at it. His verse droops and languishes under a load of beauty like a bough laden with fruit. His gorgeous style is like another morn risen on mid-noon. There is no passage that is not made up of blushing lines, no line that is not enriched with a sparkling metaphor, no image that is left unadorned with a double epithet. All his verbs, nouns, adjectives are equally glossy, smooth, and beautiful. Every stanza is transparent with light, perfumed with odors, floating in liquid harmony, melting in luxurious, evanescent delights. His muse is never contented with an offering from one sense alone, but brings another rifled charm to match it, and revels in a fairy round of pleasure. The interest is not dramatic, but melodramatic. It is a mixture of painting, poetry, and music, of the natural and preternatural, of obvious sentiment and romantic costume. A rose is a ghoul, a nightingale a bubble. We might fancy ourselves in an eastern harem, amidst ottomans, an auto of roses, and veils, and spangles, and marble pillars, and cool fountains, and Arab maids, and genii, and magicians, and peris, and cherubs, and whatnot. Mr. Moore has a little mistaken the art of poetry for the cosmetic art. He does not compose a historic group or work out a single figure, but throws a variety of elementary sensations of vivid impressions together and calls it a description. He makes out an inventory of beauty, the smile on the lips, the dimple on the cheeks, item golden locks, item a pair of blue wings, item a silver sound with breathing fragrance and radiant light, and thinks it a character or a story. He gets together a number of fine things and fine names, and thinks that flung on heaps they make up a fine poem. This dissipated, fulsome, painted patchwork style may succeed in levity and languor of the boudoir, or might have been adapted to the pavilions of royalty, but it is not the style of Parnassus, nor a passport to immortality. It is not the taste of the ancients. It is not classical lore, nor the fashion of Tibullus, or Theocritus, or Nacrian, or Virgil, or Ariosto, or Pope, or Byron, or any great writer among the living or the dead, but it is the style of our English Nacrian, and it is or was the fashion of the day. Let one example and that an admired one, taken from La La Rouque, suffice to explain the mystery and to soften the harshness of the foregoing criticism. Now upon Syria's land of roses, softly the light of Eve reposes, and like a glory the broad sun hangs over sainted Lebanon, whose head in wintry grandeur towers and weddings with eternal sleep, while summer in a veil of flowers is sleeping rosy at his feet. To one who looks from upper air, 
or all the enchanted regions there. However, it just must have been the glow, the life that's sparkling from below. Fair gardens shining, streams or ranks of golden melons on their banks. More golden where the sunlight falls, gay lizards glittering on the walls of ruined shrines, busy and bright, as they were all alive with light. And yet more splendid, numerous flocks of pigeons settling on the rocks, with their rich, restless wings that gleam variously in the crimson beam. Of the warm west, as if in lace, where brilliance from the minor made, of tearless rainbows such as span the unclouded skies that Paris stand, and then the mingling sounds that come of shepherds ancient reed with hum, of the wild bees of Palestine, banqueting through the flowery vales, and Jordan those sweet banks of thine, and woods so full of nightingales. The following lines are the very perfection of Della Cruscan sentiment, and affected orientalism of style. The parent exclaims on finding that old talisman, and hackneyed poetical machine, a penitent here. Joy, joy forever, my task is done. The gates are passed, and heaven is won. Oh, am I not happy? I am, I am, to thee, sweet Eden. How dark and sad are the diamond turrets of Shadukiam, and the fragrant bars of Amberabad. There is, in all this, a play of fancy, a glitter of words, a shallowness of thought, and a want of truth and solidity that is wonderful, and that nothing but the heedless, rapid glide of the verse could render tolerable. It seems that the poet, as well as the lover, may bestride the gossamer, that wantons in the idle summer air, and yet not fall so light as vanity. Mr. Moore ought not to contend with serious difficulties, or with entire subjects. He can write verses, not a poem. There is no principle of massing or of continuity in his productions, neither height nor breadth nor depth of capacity. There is no truth of representation, no strong internal feeling, but a continual flutter and display of affected airs and graces, like a finished coquette, who hides the want of symmetry by extravagance of dress, and the want of passion by flippant forwardness and unmeaning sentimentality. All is flimsy, all is florid to excess. His imagination may dally with insect beauties, or Rosicrucian spells, may describe a butterfly's wing, a flower pot, a fan, but it should not attempt to span the great outlines of nature, or keep pace with the sounding march of events, or grapple with the strong fibers of the human heart. The great becomes turgid in his hands, the pathetic insipid, if Mr. Moore were to describe the heights of Chimbaraco instead of the loneliness, the vastness, and the shadowy might, he would only think of adorning it with roseate tints like a strawberry ice, and would transform a magician's fortress in the Himalaya, stripped of its mysterious gloom and frowning horrors, into a jeweler's toy to be set upon a lady's toilette. In proof of this, see above the diamond turrets of Shadukiam, etc., a description of Mokana in the fight, though it has spirit and grandeur of effect, has still a great alloy of the mock heroic in it. The root of blood and death, which is otherwise well marked, is infested with a swarm of firefly fancies. In vain Mokana, midst the general flight, stands like the red moon in some stormy night, among the fugitive clouds that hurrying by leave only her unshaken in the sky. The simile is fine, and would have been perfect, but that the moon is not red, and that she seems to hurry by the clouds, not they by her. The description of the warrior's youthful adversary, whose coming seems a lighted glory such as breaks in dreams, is fantastic and enervated. A field of battle has nothing to do with dreams, and again the two lines immediately after, and every sword, true as ore, billows dim, the needle tracks the lodestar following him, are a mere piece of enigmatical ingenuity and scientific mimini-pimini. 
we cannot accept the Irish melodies from the same censure. That these national airs do indeed express the soul of impassioned feeling in his countrymen, the case of Ireland is hopeless. That these prettinesses pass for patriotism, if a country can heave from its heart's core only these vapid, varnished sentiments, lip deep, and let its tears of blood evaporate in an empty conceit, let it be governed as it has been. There are here no tones to waken liberty, to console humanity. Mr. Moore converts the wild harp of Aaron into a musical snuff-box. Footnote A. Compare his songs with Burns's. We do accept from this censure the author's political squibs and the two-penny postbag. These are essences, our nests of spicery, bitter and sweet, honey and gall together. No one can so well describe the set speech of a dull formalist. Footnote B. There was a little man, and he had a little soul. And he said, little soul, let us try, etc. Parody on, there was a little man, and he had a little gun. One should think this exquisite ridicule of a pedantic effusion might have silenced forever the automaton that delivered it. But the official personage in question at the close of the session addressed an extra-official congratulation to the Prince Regent on a bill that had not passed, as if to repeat and insist upon our errors were to justify them. End of footnote B. Were the flowing locks of a dowager. In the manner of Ackermann's dresses for May. His light, agreeable, polished style pierces through the body of the court, hits off the faded graces of an Adonis of fifty, weighs the vanity of fashion in tremulous scales, mimics the grimace of affectation and folly, shoes up the littleness of the great, and spears a phalanx of statesmen, with its glittering point as with a diamond brooch. In choosing songs the regent named, had I a heart for falsehood framed, while gentle Hertford begged and prayed for young I am, and so afraid. Nothing in Pope or Prior ever surpassed the delicate insinuation and adroit satire of these lines, and hundreds more of our author's composition. We wish he would not take pains to make us think of them with less pleasure than formerly. The Fudge family is in the same spirit, but with a little falling off. There is too great a mixture of undisguised Jacobinism and fashionable slang. The divine Fanny Bias and the mountains a la Russe figure in somewhat quaintly with Bonaparte and the Bourbons. The poet also launches the lightning of political indignation, but it rather plays round and illumines his own pen than reaches the devoted heads at which it is aimed. Mr. Moore is in private life an amiable and estimable man. The embellished and voluptuous style of his poetry, his unpretending origin, and his mignon figure soon introduce him to the notice of the great, and his gaiety, his wit, his good humor, and many agreeable accomplishments fixed him there, the darling of his friends and the idol of fashion. If he is no longer familiar with royalty as with his garter, the fault is not his. His adherence to his principles caused the separation. His love of his country was the cloud that intercepted the sunshine of court favor. This is so far well. Mr. Moore vindicates his own dignity with the sense of intrinsic worth, of widespread fame, and of the intimacy of the great makes him perhaps a little too fastidious and exigeant as to the pretensions of others. He has been so long accustomed to the society of Whig lords and so enchanted by the smile of beauty and fashion that he really fancies himself one of the set to which he is admitted on sufferance and tries very unnecessarily to keep others out of it. He talks familiarly of works that are or are not read in our circle, and seated smiling and at his ease in a coronet coach, enlivening the owner by his brisk sallies and attic conceits, is shocked as he passes to see a peer of the realm shake hands with a poet. There is a little indulgence of spleen and envy, a little servility and pandering to aristocratic pride in this proceeding. Is Mr. Moore bound to advise a noble poet to get as fast as possible out of a certain publication, lest he should not be able to give an account at Holland 
or at Lansdowne House, or how his friend Lord B had associated himself with his friend L.H. Is he afraid that the spirit of monarchy will eclipse the fables for the Holy Alliance in virulence and plain speaking? Or are the members of the Fudge family to secure a monopoly for the abuse of the Bourbons and the doctrine of divine right? Because he is genteel and sarcastic, may not others be paradoxical and argumentative? Or must no one bark at a minister or a general, unless they have been first dandled like a little French pug dog in the lap of a lady of quality? Does Mr. Moore insist on the double claim of birth and genius as a title to respectability in all advocates of the popular side, but himself? Or is he anxious to keep the pretensions of his patrician and plebeian friends quite separate, so as to be himself the only point of union, a sort of double meaning between the two? It is idle to think of setting bounds to the weakness and illusions of self-love as long as it is confined to a man's own breast, but it ought not to be made a plea for holding back the powerful hand that is stretched out to save another struggling with a tide of popular prejudice, who has suffered shipwreck of health, fame, and fortune in a common cause, and who has deserved the aid and the good wishes of all who are, on principle, embarked in the same cause by equal zeal and honesty, if not by equal talents to support and to adorn it. We shall conclude the present article with a short notice of an individual who, in the cast of his mind and in political principle, bears no very remote resemblance to the patriot and wit just spoken of, and on whose merits we should discant at greater length, but that personal intimacy might be supposed to render us partial. It is well when personal intimacy produces this effect, and when the light that dazzled us at a distance does not on a closer inspection turn out an opaque substance. This is a charge that none of his friends will bring against Mr. Lee Hunt. He improves upon acquaintance. The author translates admirably into the man. Indeed, the very faults of his style are virtues in the individual. His natural gaiety and sprightliness of manner, his high animal spirits, and the vinous quality of his mind produce an immediate fascination and intoxication in those who come in contact with him, and carry off in society whatever in his writings may to some seem flat and impertinent. From great sanguineness of temper, from great quickness and unsuspecting simplicity, he runs on to the public as he does at his own fireside, and talks about himself, forgetting that he is not always among friends. His look, his tone are required to point many things that he says. His frank, cordial manner reconciles you instantly to a little overbearing, overweening self-complacency. To be admired, he needs but to be seen. But perhaps he ought to be seen to be fully appreciated. No one ever sought his society who did not come away with a more favorable opinion of him. No one was ever disappointed, except those who had entertained idle prejudices against him. He sometimes trifles with his readers, or tires of a subject, from not being urged on by the stimulus of immediate sympathy. But in conversation he is all life and animation, combining the vivacity of the schoolboy with the resources of the wit and the taste of the scholar. The personal character, the spontaneous impulses, do not appear to excuse the author, unless you are acquainted with his situation and habits, like some proud beauty who gives herself what we think strange airs and graces under a mask, but who is instantly forgiven when she shews her face. We have said that Lord Byron is a sublime coxcomb. Why should we not say that Mr. Hunt is a delightful one? There is certainly an exuberance of satisfaction in his manner, which is more than the strict logical premises warrant, and which dull and phlegmatic constitutions know nothing of, and cannot understand till they see it. He is the only poet or literary man we ever knew who puts us in mind of Sir John Suckling, or Killigrew, or Carew, or who united rare intellectual acquirements with outward grace and natural gentility. Mr. Hunt ought to have been a gentleman born, and to have patronized men of letters, 
He might then have played and sung and laughed and talked his life away, have written manly prose, elegant verse, and a story of Rimini would have been praised by Mr. Blackwood. As it is, there is no man now living who at the same time writes prose and verse so well, with the exception of Mr. Southey, an exception we fear that will be little palatable to either of these gentlemen. His prose writings, however, display more consistency of principle than the laureates, his verses more taste. We will venture to oppose his third canto of the story of Rimini for classic elegance and natural feeling to any equal number of lines from Mr. Southey's epics or from Mr. Moore's La Larouque. In a more gay and conversational style of writing, we think his epistle to Lord Byron on his going abroad is a masterpiece, and the Feast of the Poets has run through several editions. A light familiar grace and mild unpretending pathos are the characteristics of his more sportive of serious writings, whether in poetry or prose. A smile plays around the features of the one, a tear is ready to start from the thoughtful gaze of the other. He perhaps takes too little pains, and indulges in too much wayward caprice in both. A wit and a poet, Mr. Hunt, is also distinguished by fineness of tact and sterling sense. He has only been a visionary in humanity, the fool of virtue. What then is the drawback to so many shining qualities that has made them useless or even hurtful to their owner? His crime is to have been editor of the Examiner ten years ago, when some allusion was made in it to the age of the present king, and that, though his majesty has grown older, our luckless politician is no wiser than he was then. End of chapter 17 Recording by Arden